Welcome to On The Square. I'm your host, Saad Abdul-Kabir, curator and producer of On The Square and senior editor at Sapelo Square. Today, we have a special treat for this, our 10th episode of the podcast collaboration with The Maidan. As we round out this podcast series and the year 2021, we are doing a year-end review of the top 10 moments of 2021 with the Sapelo Squad. Many of you know Sapelo Square and you know the work we do, but you don't often get to hear from everybody who's behind the scenes. And so that's why I'm really excited to be joined by my squad members today. And I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Tasha? Assalamu alaikum, everyone. My name is Latasha Rousseau, and I am the administrative coordinator for Sapelo Square. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Nisa Muhammad. I'm the internship coordinator at Sapelo Square. Assalamu alaikum. I'm Jermaine Foster, and I'm the web developer for Sapelo Square. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Aida Leah Rashid, and I am the special projects coordinator for Sapelo Square. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Aisha Karuth, and I am a managing editor at Sapelo Square. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for folks to hear from y'all. And I'm really excited to get up into this top 10. So it was Latasha who had this idea of a top 10. And so the question was, is it a general top 10? Is it a Black top 10? Is it a Black and Muslim top 10? I don't know if we had a consensus. It feels like we're kind of doing all of them, right? So we're going to get started. And of course, of the top 10, number 10 is COVID. Year two of the pandemonium, the pandemian. We got this Omarion variant, you know, now. <laughs> running around. You got the racist news saying it's the South African variant where it's not from South Africa, you know. Unfortunately, right, COVID is, you know, with us and still sort of wrecking havoc on our lives. And so that is kind of, you know, the tenth moment we wanted to talk about. Anyone want to chime in on COVID? Outside of being tired of it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I know. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's like, what are we supposed to be doing? Like, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm a professor, right? And you, know, I teach classes, and you know, the schools first they're like, we're gonna do this, then we're not gonna do that, then we're gonna do this, then we're not gonna do that, right? And then it's like, I was supposed to have this fellowship in the UK last year that I couldn't take because of COVID, right? And it's like, is it gonna get better? Can I do it this year, or should I just, you know, charge that to the game? And it's a wrap, you know. First off, you know, there's been so much death. I think like on a meta, like I'm, as most of you on the squad know, I, I'm usually the one that always brings in like the metaphysical or the like spiritual aspects of everything. <laughs> so I don't mind going there, but just for the, the sake of like, this is a lost plan and for whatever reason, I think that we have to take it for what it is, which is a sign. I mean, it's a sign from God. We don't know exactly what exactly Allah is communicating to us. I mean, the fact that... But this is, but this is my problem. What is this a sign about? Like, what is going on? Are these, <laughs> you're right. I thought about that. I was like, clearly something is... Like, the whole world is impacted, right? Like, yeah. it's not like it's like a corner of the world. Like, everybody. Right. So what is he trying to tell us? I mean, not he. What is he, she, they, God? Has no gender. <laughs> <laughs> what is God trying to tell us? I'm, 
I mean, one, we should be constantly in the remembrance knowing that like we don't have that much time. Anything could happen to any of us at any particular time. So get yourself together and, you know, prepare yourself to meet, to return to, to God. But also I think being mindful of time, being mindful of we're all like this is a never in the history of humanity have we ever had such a global experience like we're all experiencing this like i'm living on the other side of the world i'm not in the states right now you know y'all are in the states and there's an impact like and then there's this global grief where people have lost loved ones and there are folks that have been impacted from the economic perspective and standpoint so there's just so many things and I think it's really up to us individually to take time out to process what does it mean for you? What does it mean for us as a collective? And then so much is happening on top. Ever since COVID happened, it seems like there's been a huge shift where we're talking about the economy and Bitcoin and metaverse, like the, the metaverse <laughs> and all these things are, are happening. There's all these conversations that are that are occurring and there's this shift in energy. I don't know. It's just, there's a lot of layers to it. And I think it's just important for us to just make time to reflect on what does it mean to us as individuals and as a collective? Yeah. Aida, I think you brought up a great point about it being a sign, but I, I also like when we go out and then we zoom back in from the highlight or the zoomed out level, it does expose and highlight the clear inequities in position mm-hmm. economics, you know, we uh, who are in the United States and also not even the United States who are in what do they call what the uh, leading countries, we are now have access to not just the vaccine, but we have access to um, boosters. And we're not going to talk about vaccine hesitancy, but just just access period, whereas people who are in the developing world, and most of us have connections to the developing world in one way, shape, or form, they don't have that easy access. And when you get to those countries who in the developing world have the immediate access versus who aren't and how that is impacting their health systems. Like I have friends who are epidemiologists and they were really advanced in trying to get help into various countries in Africa. And just looking at how the pandemic affected the ongoing epidemic of uh, HIV treatments, people with chronic illnesses not being able to get their daily medications because hospitals were so overwhelmed. It's crazy. You know, just from a, just from a perspective of uh, mental health, you know, being, (laughs) again, and close quarters with your family members, having the whole online schooling situation, having not not a lot of access to to just go outside and be by yourself. It it was it was a lot. You know, I know my mental health suffered and I'm happy because I'm able to get access to help, but there's 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 other people who don't. I'm not a frontline health worker, but I have family members who are <laughs> and they're lack of availability to help because they have to be on the front lines. That also exposes, you know, who's, how you can get access, how you can be safe <laughs> and how you limit your exposure. It, it's, it's just a lot. So yeah. COVID is a big, <laughs> Yeah. So now that we started on that, no, <laughs> but yeah, but, but it's real. Right. And I think, you know, we're, there's a lot of we I think about and reflect on, right. And deal with. With the, with you know, as we're in our second year of the COVID pandemic, so so if I um, could for just a second, just point out yes. to the listeners, 
how Aida calmed everybody down. That's what she does at Sapphalo. <laughs> That's what she does at Sapphalo. <laughs> and her melodic voice just made us, okay, come back to reality and realize, okay, we, you know, COVID is from a lot. So um, I just wanted to point that out because that's what she do all the time. <laughs> Thank you. And our ninth moment actually was a suggestion from um, Aida. So I guess on a, on a, on a sort of a more celebratory note, um, there's a sister, Nigel Mutman. Um, she's a filmmaker, Black Muslim filmmaker from Oakland, California. She, um, you might have heard of her before because she has a feature-length um, film called Jen, which is a coming-of-age story. But she also has had kind of a banner year, I think, in 2021. You know, she's been... Uh, I know she was she was directing some episodes of the Wu-Tang story on Hulu, Queen Sugar, also that new um, show, Swagger, on um, Apple TV. So that's definitely a moment. I think, Aida, you wanted to say a little something about that. Yeah, I mean... Nashla's from Oakland, from the Bay Area, so it's like home, and she she's repping for the town. She's doing her work. I know that she it hasn't been easy for her, although I just I'm just happy to see her, you know, being acknowledged. Like seeing her on the Black News television show, you know, the show with Mark Lamont Hill interviewing her, and just really like. If I guess you could say giving her her flowers or just acknowledging her and her her genius, her brilliance, and the fact that she's she's doing some work that is just being recognized on on a national level, and she's just a brilliant storyteller and how she's um, showing empathy with the character development. She's the visuals are on point. It's just all of these. Things are coming together, and again, it's it's something that um, as a kid, as a teenager, you know, I, I never saw anyone like her on shows, or you know, and the fact that she's she's creating stories and and representing from from the community in which which I was raised in and come from, just makes me happy, you know, and it, it just is is hopeful, you know. I think that there's a something really beautiful happening right now in Hollywood and in the entertainment industry where there's this acknowledgement that we need more representation of lots of different types of people than just one group. And so, you know, I'm just excited to see more folks on the come up and knowing that there's more resources and opportunities for folks like Nesla, you know, and, and yeah. others. So I know Tasha had had watched the interview. Did you have anything that you really liked about it, Tasha? Um, well, it, it was really short and everything you said, I agree with. Um, I wasn't aware that she had directed one of the episodes because long story short, I'm from Atlanta, right? My husband, he's from New York, Buffalo, New York. And so Growing up, I really didn't listen to Up North music that much unless it was really mainstream. And, you know, Wu-Tang is not really, you know, Method Man, some of his stuff. Wu-Tang for the kids! (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, I'm not looking at that. And um, I ended up watching it and loved it. Like, absolutely loved it. Mm. So I'm going to have to go back and um, watch the episode that she directed because I think that is awesome. And I don't know if y'all do, but Whenever I look at something on TV, 
I wait for the credits and see if there's a Muslim name on there somewhere. So I must have mm. missed this with her name on there. But yeah, um, I think that's awesome. Okay. And it's it, we all need right. to be more represented in all media. So, mm. so thank you. Um, yes, of course, I get to bring in that town business uh, <laughs> into, into the... Um, into the uh, and I say that because my husband's from Oakland too. So I know all about the town. And people are very proud. Of course, I'm from Brooklyn and we're prouder and we're better. But anyway, we'll talk about <laughs> another time. I knew, I knew she was going to bring that up. I knew it. <laughs> That's why I had to say no. Atlanta. I had to put, I put that right. in there. Exactly. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, and you have to only with Jermaine from Atlanta too. So we got we got some ATL represented on the spot as well. And we, even before Jermaine, we had our my um, previous web developer, um, Samaya. She's also from Atlanta. So yeah, we always give Atlanta some love um, here. But speaking about, I guess it's a good way to like segue into number eight, which is versus, right? So, you know, this versus phenomenon started right in COVID and it has moved from, you know, Uncle Teddy <laughs> and baby face, which you had some technical difficulties to like the, to like basic concerts right now. Right. So versus I, I, mean, I can go first with this one. So for me this year, there were a lot of good verses, but Karis won a Big Daddy King. I lost my mind. I was like, I literally I actually had to travel like to a town not far from where I live and I was at a hotel and I had my phone like I had to go get food so I had my phone on right and no no headphones right <laughs> my phone on I was watching the verses with me because I was like I can't miss a minute of this right so talk about that you know just because as a hip-hop head and you know just I mean that was definitely for the culture there was like because he had you know, they had the DJs, had all the elements. You you had knowledge. You had the, the MCs, the DJs, the B-Boys, B-Girls. And oh, they didn't have no B-Girls, so I was upset about that. But when Big Zeddy came, made them give respect to Roxanne Chante, I was like, that's what's up. So, yeah. So that's, that was definitely a highlight of the year for me. Thank you for mentioning that babyface, Teddy Riley. Um, <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> But I think I can't remember all the ones I watched, but I did like the Escape. Shout out to Atlanta mm. again, Escape and SWV. Um, mm-hmm. I did like their their performances, um, but I I can't really remember too many more. Did you that see was the, from this the year. Earth, Wind, and Fire? And, oh yeah, um, Isley Brothers. <laughs> yes, that one was fab. It was four hours. <laughs> four hours of verses. <laughs> That was great. That was my second runner up. But oh, I had to go yeah. my generation. No, second I had to go my generation. Okay. Right. My generation. I mean, you know, I mean, Brooklyn keep on taking it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, I'm glad I made your yeah. list because the Isley Brothers and Earth, Wind and Fire, they were phenomenal. I mean, and every time another song comes, I was like, oh my God, I remember that song. Oh, where did that song come from? Where did that? I mean, on both sides. And Steve Harvey hosting it. I mean, it was, it was just hilarious. It Listen, was, it was if he hilarious. didn't stop talking, I, was like, <laughs> I know. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. But yeah, that was my favorite. I mean, I saw the one with Patti LaBelle and um, Gladys Knight. Was that this year? Oh, was that this year? Maybe that was maybe it was one of the early ones in 2020. That may not have been this year. That may not have been this year. But okay, yeah, for this year, it was Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Icy Brothers for me. That was that one was four hours long, and I hung in there for every minute. It was good. Wow. Props to uh, you. Yeah. Because yeah. I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> but um, my favorite was, of course, I got to give it up to, you know, Jada Kiss and the gang. <laughs> I'm outside. <laughs> I'm outside. 
<laughs> like, what? I must have played that thing out like two or three times. Watched it, you know, replay on YouTube. That was my jam. That was my favorite versus. <laughs> you reminded me, my third runner up was Fat Joe and Ja Rule. Today's price? Is not <laughs> <laughs> that yesterday's price. <laughs> or Jermaine, what you, we can hear you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, me personally, I, I, I would have to agree. I think um, I think the locks, the locks and Dipset, that was probably my favorite. Um, That's what's up, Jermaine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Locks and Dipset. Uh, J- Jadakiss really showed out. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody was 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 really prepared for for what he brought to the table that night. So, yeah, I would I would definitely have to say that one. That was really just the locks. If you want to be truthful about it. Yeah, was, yeah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> that was also some real New York stuff. Too. That was <laughs> really fun. <laughs> like, no, yeah. Anyway, did you have one before we go to the next moment on the, of the year? I mean, I I didn't get a chance to to I, I watched the highlights after, but because I had fallen asleep. Um, but Erica Badu and Jill Scott. That was for the culture too. That was last year, yeah. I think. But that was last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's always yeah. I just appreciate what that did. Oh, and also Monica and Brandy. Like even though, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was last year. Or this year, I think that was last year too. I think it was last year too. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I just I don't know. I just like seeing. That was like a bat. I felt like that was kind of like a, a battle. I I was rooting for Monica and Brandy, both of them, really. I mean, it's hard. I don't want to. I don't want to do. Brandy got on my nerves. <laughs> anyway, let's go. <laughs> All, right. All right. The number seven on our list is Omi's Archive, which is was nominated by the Squad, not just by me. Although it is near and dear to my heart. Um, it is a new project that I'm working on. It's a disciplinary project where I'm using my mother's personal and family archives to explore all different kinds of parts of the Black experience. And this summer, we had six online exhibitions from April through October that covered themes from Black power to the African diaspora to Black girlhood, right? Um, um, sort of displayed on this really interactive, dynamic website. Shout out to my Umi's archive team for putting that on. Um, anybody want to talk about that moment? So I loved it um, from the very beginning, even the choice of the name, Umi's Archive, you know, and and for Black people, we spell Umi a different way than other people. And I think you started off by talking about that process, about how we use the word Umi and how it's spelled. And I just love that your mother kept all these things. I mean, and it just made me go looking for stuff from my mother. I was like, my mother leave anything? I'm not kept looking for my mother's archives and, you know, talking to other relatives and trying to see their archives because it gave people such a connection to her who didn't know her. I mean, mm-hmm. and just the, I mean, the, from letters to postcards to, I mean, just everything that you showed, it was just really amazing. And it just, you know, showed me, I should probably leave some stuff like so that my children <laughs> have a better inkling into my life perhaps that I may not be saying to them. And it's just the whole process from the start to begin. I thought it was just amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, as someone who has formally studied like museum studies and learning, you know, have worked, I've worked in so many different types of museums, um, like world renowned museums, you know, and this project was, was very much in 
could be in any world renowned, you know, institution that, I mean, I feel like there needs to be a museum just for Umi's archive. Like there could be a whole museum just around Umi's archive because of what was was uh, exhibited. And it was just done so beautifully, so odd. Like it really was just beautifully done, just with such excellence, with such beauty. And one of the highlights that I really loved was seeing how your mother, she would transcribe some of the du'as, some of the prayers, like seeing how she was just trying to remember, you know, how just kind of going through that process of of remembering of like, okay, choosing to to go on this path of al-Islam and making this choice for herself and then learning the religion, like learning the deen, just doing it with like such intention and like sincerity, like, oh, and you know, there was just so much sincerity in, in her, and her journey, you know, to want to do things well, want to do things with excellence, um, and just striving, like really seeing the striving towards, you know, doing good work, striving towards holding on to what she knew, which was cultural identity, like bringing all of that. And I just feel so great. You know, I'm just grateful. I really, really am grateful for that. Uh, And I'm praying that at some point more people can experience that. Like, I really, I think it was just super powerful. And congratulations that you were able to get through that. Shout out to Open Society for giving you that fellowship or what was it a fellowship that you well no shout out to me they're like i'm joking but no, the work was supported right so yes. i got in this fellowship from open societies right yes. which gave me the time to get off, yes. off of my day job yes. right because it's i mean like it was so much work yeah. like i can't even i'm, like, I'm still trying like the the exhibitions are closed and I'm putting quotation marks right now like temporarily right now and I'm still not done like it's just like it's a lot of work so but I was gonna say I want to move on to the next um item but I want to think about wait 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 wait. uh before before we move on I just want to say like I also appreciated the way that you handled and the team handled the tougher issues Mm -hmm. um because it was balanced one of my favorite exhibitions was the one on heartbreak and loss um, and it's, it's, it's the kind of subtlety, like, you know, a Latif, we talk about Allah's, uh, name of, of, of being the subtle, the gentle, the balanced, the one who restores. And I think that, that particular ex- exhibition for me was, was a manifestation of that name mm. because it presented the heartbreak, the love and the process of healing, um, with such magnificence. I've said this to you, Swad, <laughs> and I know that was one of the toughest things. Um, but I remember just being like, wow, wow. <laughs> like, and having to just, I think that that particular exhibition and, and the one on um, Black Power, those were the mm. two that really resonated with me for those reasons about dealing with tougher issues, but dealing with it in the framework of Islam and, mm. and, 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 the, and the feminine. Right. Mm. So thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, no, that was, it was definitely, uh, I think, and that's one of the things I think 
that I discovered about doing the project in Omi's archive is, you know, my mother's an individual person. It's a personal story, but you know, in the personal, right, is the political, in the personal is the universal. And so there are so many kind of ways I think people connected um, to the work and will hopefully continue to do um, connect when things get relaunched in 2022. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, wait a minute. Let me get in there. Yeah. Because I, I, I do right. want to speak about Omi's archive just briefly because I agree with everyone. And we knew about Umi's archive and how it was coming along and we didn't see it, you know, until it was out. And to me, when I look at it, because, you know, you're the founder of Sapelo Square and then now you have Umi's archive and it's like your two different sides, you know, Sapelo Square is kind of like hard and, you know, in your face and Umi's archive is like elegant, like it's, mm. it's, it's love, you know, I see it, you know, and so I just wanted to put that out there. It's, it reminds me of yeah. you and to see that side, you know, your the softer side of mm-hmm. you, that, that's the contrast to me. Yeah. And um, so yeah. congratulations on that. No, oh, thank you. That's cool. You know, you're thinking, you're making me think about the next one. So thinking about, like, one of the things in Omi's archive was a focus on Black women, on Black Muslim women as leaders and as people people who, who sort of create and move things. And our next item, uh, a moment rather, is about the Sudan. And, you know, it was about two years ago, right, where there was that woman. And I think I looked online, they said during the protests that were happening in 2019, they were referred to female protesters as Pandaka. And there was that famous shot, right, where there was that one woman who was in the white robe and she was on top of this car, right, and they were talking about sort of revolution and, and just kind of really making a, a Sudan for all. And then all these huge changes happened, right, in 2019. But now we're in 2021, right, and there's just there was just a military coup that happened. And right now, from what I was reading, it seems like the head of the military is saying, right, that they're going to return things or like try to broker some kind of power sharing with the civilians. But I'm not really sure what's going on. But I mean, I think what's happening is really important and definitely made a mark on 2021. Um, I think, Aisha, you wanted to say something about that? Yeah, I think it's something that's not, unless you're directly impacted with Sudan, you're not really following it. And I, I have had, my best friend is Sudanese and I have a lot of Sudanese friends. So, so um, I, I'm so blessed to be able to to have and like an insider view. A lot of the people who were active in developing this civilian government had to go on lockdown and, and are in, in hiding because of this. I've also followed BS on Blast on IG, and she does daily like recaps, quick recaps. Um, uh, and it's 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 a nice way of engaging. It's, she presents it with some humor. The only way that black Muslim, black people can, you know, um, like is there is uh, the way that she presents. Her name is Sarah El Hassan. Presents the recaps with factual on the ground information, but through the lens of a woman and through the lens of yo read through the foolishness because what Sudan's not fitting to happen <laughs> is another Egypt, right? And I think maybe the military government anticipated that people will back away and underestimated how strong the the desire and the heartfelt needs to want to have democracy by and for the people because the previous president, Bashir, just clamored and destroyed um, civil society. But what they didn't know is underneath that, people were actively working. And so every single step of the way that the government has tried to undermine political activism, 
the people have withstood it. They shut down internet. They found another way. Shout out to all the people who know how to operate underneath. <laughs> <Not> For real. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and we just had a sneak peek into what that means. Um, so if you haven't been following it, please, I, I, I highly recommend um, following BS on Blast on IG. Um, and she also has a Twitter account, too. Um, yeah, we can definitely link to her. I think I follow her too, and she's she is hilarious. She's like she sounds like a millennial, right? Like yes, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. I think I follow her too. You know, it's it's what's crazy about the Sudan piece too is just like you know, you know the the way we're still living, right? You know, how does Sudan even get into this mess? Well, you know, British colonialism, right? Like mm-hmm. the way in which, like the ways in which sort of European colonialism, imperialism, expansion, you know, has really sort of we're still living, you know, I think in, they call it, um, relatedly, and some of the scholars call it like the afterlife of slavery, right? And it's like mm. this idea that, you know, we think of it, these things ended, you know, Sudan became an independent country or something like that, but it didn't really end, right? Um, because of what happened during the time of colonialism and then post-colonialism or neocolonialism that people are experiencing, you know, which brings us to the, the next top moment we have. On, on the other side of the world, but also a former British colony in Barbados, right? So Barbados, for those who have been watching or if you haven't been, just so Barbados got its independence in the same period, the decolonizing period um, in the 50s and 60s where everyone else did. But they were, but the Queen of England was still the head of state up until like last week, right? <laughs> Which is like crazy to think about, right? And so now... Um, I think her name is Mia Amor Motley, is the first prime minister and like of, of an independent republic of Barbados. And I was on, on Twitter, I think I saw it when I first saw the announcement, they said some 380,000 enslaved people like were in the population of Barbados. And I have ancestors from there, right? So, I, and I, my tweet was like, I was like, something like, you know, uh, of those 380,000 people, like I have some ancestors and I know they're saying, and a really, you know, thick, you know, African accented, Bayesian accent, about damn time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was listening, I was watching that um, Democracy Now! And there was a, a Bayesian scholar and he was saying how Barbados was really the center of sort of British colonization mm-hmm. in the region and that the techniques of how they were enslaving people that kind of first developed in Barbados, right? And then was sort of used in other islands like Jamaica and that kind of thing. And we know, you know, the British, the 13 colonies were under that, right? So we know like Charleston, South Carolina and Barbados were these two ports where they would shuttle people, right, back and forth um, as a part of the slavery and all, you know, so people, human goods and sort of like, you know, sort of material goods too. So, you know, it's, I think it's a pretty exciting thing to think that this happened. I mean, it seems like, you would have thought that was already the case, but, you know, and now the next step um, I heard is reparations. They're like, huh. okay, so Britain, y'all need to pay up. <laughs> so we will see. And the one other thing I'll say before we go to the next one um, is I think also they were saying that there are plans to build one of the largest sort of history of slavery museums in Barbados now. And I know that when I went there once in 2013, I was told that in Barbados, they have some of the best archives in the Caribbean, you know, the stuff that the British didn't take, you know, with them to England. And so it'd be really exciting to see kind of what they're going to do in terms of documenting our histories and retelling our stories, right, in an independent Barbados. So, so that's cool. Yeah. 
just, just a quick question on that. Um, mm-hmm. So, so Queen Elizabeth. So that was not a symbolic. That was just not a symbolic position. She was actually the head of state making decisions uh, that you know impacted Barbados, or was that kind of a mm-hmm. was, was it more mm-hmm. symbolic? Aisha, you want to say something? So. Um, in in one sense, she was a representative figurehead, right? But she was still on the currency and there were still things that they had to do, processes that they had to follow in order to take certain laws and make certain things happen. So even though it was a figurative position, there were still particularly on the economic side, um, what do you call that? I, I would say like a marinette, right? Mm. Right. Um, but you never saw that. So the current prime minister abolishing those ties. And I even even if you look at the ceremony itself and if you haven't checked it out, it's very much in keeping with <laughs> kind of traditional pomp and circumstance. And and I thought I thought that was interesting. <laughs> like, yeah, but, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I saw, too, they were like, but they also did it like that. The, the, it was a one part where the military, because their military was the British military. So they're changing that. So there was a sort of changing of flags. You know, the thing about Barbados, and this is something that I learned as an adult, um, my, my mother's maternal grandparents came to the United States from Barbados, but, you know, they died when I was really young. And so I don't really have a lot of like cultural connection to Barbados in that sense. But I learned as an adult that in the Caribbean, like, like the Bayesians are more British than the British. Yes, <laughs> like, they call Barbados <laughs> Little England. Right. And That's so, what and it's so, called. It, and so, so it's so the symb- symbolically, it's a big deal. You know what I mean? So it's not even like so. Even though, like in terms of like, yeah, there were there were limits. So you know, there was it was like a kind of a head of state as a symbolic thing, but that really meant something, right? Because if people are, if there's like this culture, right, of kind of kind of I don't know if mimicking or whatever, but there's this culture of that, right? That this is a really significant thing to yeah. be like, you know, we're not doing that. <laughs> anymore. Yeah. That that kind of makes me think, uh, you know, I think there's still, you know, a couple countries in in Africa where the judges still wear those, you know, those weird, (laughs) but yeah, those weird white wigs, you know, in the courtroom. And it's like, okay, what, what, what is the point Mm -hmm. of this? And then, you know, I mean, I guess that ties back to your whole uh, what you were saying about neo-colonialism, mm. you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, and I, one last thing I'll say about this: on a different country, I actually had the opportunity to go to Curacao, and Curacao is part of the, what they call the Dutch Antilles, and so Curacao, Aruba, Bonaire, they were um, colonized by the Dutch. And when I was there, like now, Curacao, I think, is still a part of like maybe a department of the Netherlands. It's not like a fully independent um, nation. But when I'm there and I would open up my phone and Google Maps, I would be in the Netherlands. And I was confused at first because I thought, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> You're like, I'm, I'm like in this island somewhere. I'm trying to find how to get to like, you know, X Street. And it's telling me how to get someplace in Amsterdam. And it was really crazy. And then I, and then I realized, and it's all about colonialism, right? Like, like you can't, like I had, at first I thought, oh, maybe because I need to be on Wi-Fi. Yeah, I would change all these things, but it didn't matter. Like Google Maps put the island of Curacao, which is like, I don't know, 20, 30 something miles from Venezuela, like I was in on the other side of the Atlantic. So it's really kind of crazy if you think about how that continues to impact us. So number four on our list is actually a kind of, I think it's both celebratory and maybe a little controversial. So there's a poet, Amir Suleiman, who is, you know, a dear friend of many of us here. We featured him on Tapos Square and he's been nominated for a Grammy. He's been nominated for a Grammy because Dave Chappelle has been nominated for a Grammy. So Dave Chappelle did this comedy special, 846, where he really kind of talked about, I think, you know, it was really focused on sort of George Floyd and the impact of what happened after that. And so... 
this special release vinyl on one side is the comedy um, special on the other side is Amir Suleiman. So this is a really great moment uh, where Amir, congratulations Amir for getting nominated for a Grammy. And Dave Chappelle has had an interesting year too, right? So he had that comedy special and then he had some other comedy specials that came out this year too that I think have shown themselves to be kind of a significant moment because Dave Chappelle being a Black Muslim, we would be remiss to not kind of talk about what the significance of that is. And I think, Jermaine, you've seen the specials, right? Yeah, I've seen both specials. Um, the most recent one is, you know, that that kind of permeates in my mind a little <laughs> a little bit more than the, the one he put out last year. But uh, yeah, I mean, Dave Chappelle, he's definitely been, you know, over the years, a, a, a contra- controversial figure. Uh, you know, his comedy was always direct, you know, brass, straightforward. And I think beyond, beyond everything else, I think his specials in, the, I guess, the most recent one, uh, more so has brought up, you know, a lot of questions about, you know, certain things like cancel culture, you know, exactly what is that? Who, you know, the, who can be canceled? Why? What, why are we canceling people? Can you cancel people? I mean, also questions about comedy in general. You know, when people, you know, I think he said in the last special, he said something about before you get mad or whatever, you know, just remember you clicked on my face, <laughs> you know, so you know what you're getting into when you turn on a, a special by a, a comedian, by someone like Dave Chappelle or whatever. And it's been interesting to see like the, you know, the crazy wide ranges of, of reactions and the protests and, you know, all these other kind of things in relation to, to his comedy special. You know, I'm not really sure what became of, of any of those objections and, and protests and things like that. But I don't know, for me, as a person who's a fan of just, you know, cre- creativity and creative endeavors in general, it's, it's real interesting to see what the response has been to what, what I see as his, his perspective, you know, and his form of uh, his, his form of art. Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm like. So I've never really, like, I, I think I've never even seen a whole episode of the Chappelle show because I, I've always felt Dave Chappelle, like his comedy is just too vulgar for me. Like, I'm just not interested in that at all. But people who like, you know, who, you know, who spend a lot of time, you know, watching comedy, all that kind of stuff, like they're like, yo, he's a genius. So I'm like, okay, I trust you. <laughs> like, I'm not taking take your word for it. Right. And obviously he's black and he's Muslim. And so, you know, that's a, that's a significance as well. Right. In terms of even like when he left Comedy Central. Right. And, and, and kind of the ways in which his, from what I read. Right. Like his kind of religious you know, faith really shaped kind of some of the choices he was making and definitely the politics. Like, I think, I feel like, you know, I've seen Dave Chappelle really come out and, and speak politically, but at the same time, I kind of feel like, I don't know. I feel like, so one, Dave Chappelle was not canceled. And I think people do this thing where they're like, it's like, dude, he's not missing. He did, he still got paid. <laughs> he's still doing shows. Like he's not canceled. But I feel like to me, it just feels like, particularly around the sexuality piece, I feel like people are rallying behind Dave Chappelle because he's saying things they want to say, but they won't say. And, and to me, that's just, it's just, it's kind of like a punk move. Cause that, cause, cause it's not, cause, because they're just like, they're rallying behind and there's no, cause like, it's not like everything he says is the gospel, right? <laughs> so like, there should be room for like critique and debate, but there isn't. It's like Dave Chappelle is like, you know, well, he said it and he's Dave Chappelle, you can't say nothing. I don't know. There's something about it. Like I've been following it from like the outskirts kind of, you know, like, like I said, cause I don't really watch his stuff like that. I did see the 846 one. I didn't see the ones that came out this year, but there's something about that 
that I don't know, it rubbed me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And to me, and maybe I don't know if it's about him or even like like his responsibility, right? As a person who has power in his space. You know, like like I feel like you have certain kinds of responsibilities. And I feel like you know, something about him shirking that responsibility in the name of speaking the truth when the truth is much more complicated than that. I don't know. Something about it don't fit me. And also, like I was saying before, like I know people like Amir who black like Muslims, like you know, Muslims in entertainment, who, you know, Dave Chappelle has used his power and influence, right? Or his connections to support, which is great. But ain't none of them been female that I've seen. And so I'm also kind of like, what's up with that? Anyway, I had a contrarian view, so I wanted to <laughs> put that in there. So I I have seen I'm a fan of Dave Chappelle, and I have seen like since he was on Comedy Central, and I've seen both. Netflix specials and this last one I liked it but I was really surprised because he he to me he went to another level than he usually goes so I'm not surprised by the backlash it got because it was I think talking about a demographic that no one likes to say negative things about and um, I think that's why a lot of people were going on on board with that um, to me, I, I do think he's, he makes, you know, whether you like him or not, the things that he says, he makes you think about it more deeply than you would just regularly through, through comedy. And I think that's a part of what comedians have kind of always done. So there was another good, um, it wasn't a documentary, but I mean, a special, but he had a conversation with David Letterman and like he sat down with him hmm. and that one was really oh, right, good right, right. Um, cuz he did talk about Islam a lot in that and probably that's one of my favorite ones from him cuz it's really just speaking about him and um his conversion and and all of that so i mean that's my piece on it yeah hmm. i just wanted to jump in real quick and just say you know one thing i do uh, like I've also since Dave Chappelle show, the Chappelle show was out when I was an undergrad in, in college and, you know, it was like an event, like my, some of my, um, my classmates, we would gather together and like watch it and talk about it. Like we actually had dialogue and conversations trying to like really break down what is going on. Cause some of them were funny, but then there were some times where we would like, pause just like the boondocks we were kind of we like think they Chappelle show like came on and then we also watched the boondocks anyway we were always just and the people I hung out with we were always analyzing everything <laughs> so you know my relationship to to Dave Chappelle through the screen I've always like Tasha says I've always found it interesting that he yeah he would use his comedy to just make people laugh but then also like watching his special with Oprah when he sat down and he talked about how like this one person the way he was laughing it just was like he wasn't laughing with me he was laughing at me and how he had to like acknowledge that he was shucking and jiving a little too much and how he needed to fall back and like reevaluate his artistry his you know what he was doing and then going through like his own depression, you know, just, just really him being vulnerable enough. And I think that's what happens sometimes, which, you know, we are watching someone growing up and processing and going through life, like on a, on a, on a 
world stage. He's, he's not a perfect person by any means, but just to see his evolution and his, his growth. Yeah. I'm fascinated, you know, by it. And the last thing I will say is I think folks should listen to the first episode of his, the podcast that he's doing, um, the Midnight Miracle with Yasin Bey and Talib Kweli. It was a really beautiful, I believe it was a really beautiful conversation around death and life and all that's in between. And, uh, you know, I'm ag- agreement was so odd. Like I would love to see him put some more folks on, especially women from our community and inshallah, maybe one day that we'll, you know, we'll see, see him continuing to support those in our community. But you know, until then, um, just pray for the brother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I think, it's, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think part of it, like I said, so it's celebratory and controversial, right, in terms of who he is, and but not just who he is as a person, but what he represents, right? Because you know, also like I can't imagine like the Muslim community. Like I was like, you know how, and the Muslim community here, I'm using as a euphemism for non-black Muslims. So like, you know. They'll be like, oh, my God, Dave Chappelle did something and like everybody's passing around like something he did. Right. But let him, let him have been David or Chappelle. <laughs> right. Nobody be checking for her. They would be like, oh, my God, that's so great. They'd be like, stop a lot, sister. Where's your scarf? What you do with that? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so, so, so I think he's, he's interesting in that level, too. Right. Because it's like both who he is and what he does, but also like what it reflects on in terms of like community stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's also kind of shit. which is which why, why which is why he made our list, right? <laughs> All right. So number three is a kind of you know I guess a, a sort of a sad and slash bittersweet and just like same old same old I guess in a lot of different ways moment. And so two things happened this year in relationship to Malcolm X. One is sad. His daughter Malika Shabazz she returned to Allah in October of, of this year, which, you know, the fan, you know, you think about the Shabazz family and you think about all the kind of grief, you know, since the assassination of, of Hajim Nikhil Shabazz and Malcolm X, you know, think of the kind of grief that they dealt with. And of course, death is a part of life and we know that, but, you know, but for those, for those who are still living, it's really hard. And I remember once watching this, um, it was a kind of a YouTube, it's a YouTube video of a recording uh, of, Betty, of Dr. Betty Chavez um, in the late 90s at, I think, San Francisco State, maybe. And it was like a kind of Malcolm X Day celebration. And she was saying, you know, she was saying something to the effect that you guys talk about him and say he's a martyr and all that kind of stuff. And that's, and you know, and that's true. Like, I'm the one who, like, still misses him at night, you know? And this is like, you know, 30 some odd years after his assassination, right? And so and that's real, right? And so definitely, you know, our, our jaw, our prayers, you know, good energy and everything go to the Shabazz family, right? Um, in their time of mourning and grief. And also what happened this year was the exoneration of the two men who had been imprisoned for years. Well, three of them actually, right? One one passed away um, and two um, were released, but were imprisoned for years because they were accused of killing Malcolm. And now they've been exonerated. Lisa, did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it said that after a long, extensive um, investigation, they found that the men they had arrested were not his killers. And it was like people had been telling them this for decades. These are not the men. These these people are innocent. They proclaimed their innocence from the very beginning. I think a couple of them had even had alibis of where they were. They were not even anywhere near the Audubon ballroom, but still they were arrested. Still they were convicted. And it just shows, you know, when they 
want you for something, they want you for something and they will do whatever they can. They will manufacture evidence to put you away. These men were never even around. They were always innocent. And it's like, you're telling us what we already knew. Not now do you believe us? And so now who killed him? You know, are they going to start the investigation all over again? What's going to happen with that? I mean, it's just, it's just a, a, another heartbreak in Black America, yeah. Muslim America. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say um, their names, Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam, who um, they both spent more than 20 years in prison. I think we know, we've written about on Sapelo Square and people have done this on their work, you know, the way the prison industrial complex works and the way just in general, right, the disastrous impact prisons have on our lives, but also the kind of ways in which, you know, the state Right. So the, the prison is a state institution, but the state is very much involved in right in who killed Malcolm X. Right. And it's sort of well, who's going to hold the state accountable. Right. right. You know, you know, these men were innocent. Exactly. Yeah. You, know, you know, they were exonerated. But who's not, who now who is accountable to that? Like what happens now? <laughs> you know, they lost. Do they get to sue? Do they get, you know, can they get reparations for the for the, the destruction of their lives for all those decades? You're absolutely right. Who holds the state accountable for that tragic, tragic incident? Right. And the state's culpability and responsibility for Malcolm X's assassination. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is which is a question that I doubt they're going to explore Mm -hmm. or dig into. But like, that's really real. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. and it's something that we still do to this day. Even I remember a couple of years ago when the FBI was they had this report, they called them black identity extremists. Right. And they were targeting um, basically Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter organizers and protesters, right, for for extra surveillance because they were threatening, right? In the same way, right, the under COINTELPRO, you know, the state targeted, you know, the Nation of Islam, the Black Panther Party, all different types of, you know, sort of revolutionary radical movements targeted both in terms of spying on them, but also infiltrating their communities to create discord and to create violence, right? And to create the possibilities for things to happen that could be blamed on the community rather than where it was coming from from the outside. So that was pretty significant, I think. And I think still trying to think through what it means, you know, because I think the assassination of Malcolm X has been a space of tension and challenge within Black Muslim communities, right? Based on where you, like who, like, you know, where you fall, what you think happened, right? That has been a cause of discord. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, this, these exonerations will help bring people together, you know, who might still be, you know, kind of maybe not at odds, but might still, you know, have some distance between them because of what happened then. No, I totally agree because um, it's not even just in Black Muslim communities, but Black America, period, because there are a lot of um, people who just took a side and said these people did it or these people did it. And everybody claimed to Malcolm after a while. Malcolm is everybody's hero. Mm -hmm. Malcolm is everybody's murder. You don't have to be a Muslim just to love Malcolm. Mm -hmm. Black people in general love Malcolm. And so it, it, you know, just tore families apart. Mm-hmm. It tore people who just looked at the Muslims different now mm-hmm. after that incident. It's, and so now that we know that the Muslims didn't do it, we've been telling you we didn't do it. Then, you know, I think that could relieve a little bit of anxiety for some people who said, oh, well, y'all didn't kill him for real. No. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Something else heavy happened, I think, this year, too. And I think we want to talk about what happened in what Sapolo's response to that was. And so 2021 is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And for those who are on our mailing list, you know that for most of 2021, we've been in what we're calling a chrysalis moment, right? Sapolo turned five in 2020. And so we've been taking some time to kind of reevaluate, you know, how we run as a collective, 
and the kinds of things we want to do moving forward for the next five years and so on. And so we didn't really, we, I think we didn't even have a tweet. A repost. <laughs> like we didn't even do a tweet about 9-11. And so I thought, you know, you know, 9-11 definitely had a significant impact on the world. That's for sure. Right. And, and on, on, on Muslim lives all around the world, including um, where we reside in these here United States of America, as they say. But we didn't. We didn't do anything. We didn't say anything. And I wonder what, what you guys think about that. Or maybe, or do you want to say something now? <laughs> like what, you know, what did the 20th anniversary of 9-11 mean anything to you? You know? I'll break this silence. <laughs> uh, I mean, so living outside of the country right now and looking in, like looking from afar and just reflecting what's been going on to see all of the, I guess you could just say hypocrisy of America, like just really recognizing how it's like when there's certain moments that occur that are devastating and awful and horrendous, you know, it's like, but then there's this like, you know, never forget about this moment. But then there's all these other moments of oppression, of just extreme violence that's occurred and not recognizing like the full breadth of like just violence and destruction of like, you know, what's gone on in American society. I think that there's just been so much that's happened and reflecting on just, you know, 9-11 is important, but also just thinking about what happened last year, thinking about how there's, you know, connections to oppression around the world. And this, this pandemic, I feel like has really also allowed for, you know, more veils to be lifted because I believe they were already being lifted, but more veils being lifted and this kind of acknowledgement that there's oppression happening globally and folks are, you know, folks are recognizing it's not, you know, this, this moment in time that's horrific is, is a moment, but then there's also so many other moments and to just keep, you know, acknowledging this moment and just never forgetting it. It's like, okay, well, there's so many other moments that we can never forget. And when are we going to really acknowledge that things are falling apart and, you know, we're either going to continue to witness the fall or we're going to make choices to, to acknowledge, okay, how are we going to move forward collectively and not keep oppressing specific groups of people because there's things happening that we don't see or hear, but there are things happening and people in powerful positions that want to keep a certain agenda. And, and folks are, you know, especially our community, I think, is, is tired of the hypocrisy. Yeah, I think, Aida, you said that well. I was really proud of us for not saying anything because, you know, your mama always says, if you ain't got nothing good to say, don't say nothing. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> We don't have to be the flag bearer for everything. And I think our silence for me was kind of refreshing in the sense that um, as Black people around the globe, as a global diaspora, we have suffered under white supremacy for so long. Our mere survival, <laughs> the fact that we continue to live and love and learn for these centuries is a resistance. So we don't have to comment on other acts 
that have been, you know, globally uh, uh, or uh, in these United States. I'm, I'm sure the indigenous, if you're an indigenous Muslim, you're like, okay, <laughs> um, 1492, how about that? How about now? <laughs> like, we're still living under this oppression. So um, I was really mm-hmm. happy to be like, yeah, we, we are not be feeling that we are forced to comment on this because Black people and Black Muslims have been living under state of terrorism and oppression and, you know, mm-hmm. state-sponsored violence. And, and, and yet we continue to resist. And sometimes resistance is silence, is in, is in keeping silent. Mm. Mm. That's deep. Yeah, I know. I mean, for me, I did do something. Um, my friend and colleague, Dr. Sylvia Chamalek, she's at Rutgers. She did this um series. It was called like Muslims, Anti-Blackness and Blackness. That was during the week of September 15th, I guess. So it was sort of, I guess, 9-11 adjacent. But, but the, I think similarly, the, the recognition that 9-11 happened, it was significant but not that it overdetermines everything, right? I think is the was the point, right? That that she was that she was trying to make with that series. And you know, for me too, it was like, you know, on some level, you think about what happened and you're like, yeah, that was that was it was significant on a lot of levels. And clearly, you know, and all and you know, the people who who died, you know, that day and, and what that means for all their families, right? So you feel all that and you're like, okay, that's significant. But then you also feel like for me, but there's also like, okay, it's like same stuff, different century. And in particular, I was teaching this class this semester called Critical Muslim Studies. It was a grad seminar. And we read this book as called Those Who Know Don't Say by this historian, Garrett Felber. And it talks about um, the nation of Islam and like Black Muslim prisoners and their roles in prison advocacy and the ways in which they like really create a template for people who are in prison to sort of advocate for themselves and the relationship between inside and outside. You know, in his research, you know, things like Muslim terrorists are things that they called Black Muslims in the 60s, right? And the, the use of solitary confinement, all these different techniques. And I was thinking, because we also, you think about, you know, Guantanamo, right, for example, right? And so you have these kind of Muslims who are, you know, sort of haven't, haven't done anything, get picked up, right? There's someone just recently I heard where he was like 18 years old and they just picked him up. And someone said something, and then you know he's been he was in he was in Guantanamo for twenty some odd years, right? He spent like half his life, right? And pretty also, so this is not nine eleven doesn't it's not the beginning of anything. It becomes at least for me as a black person is like this kind of like another node or another notch in the belt of this white supremacist imperialist capitalist patriarchy that we're dealing with, right? And so it's important to recognize its relationship in that sort of history, um, but not to sort of, I think, make it the end all be all, which I think, I think some Muslims do that, but I think similar to what I think Aida was saying, that's what the state does to exceptionalize the ex- what happened to sort of really sort of cloud all the injustices you know, that, that have been justified based on what happened. You know what I mean? So it's like, if this is thing that's so important, you can't question anything. You can't say something is wrong. You can't say, why are you doing this kind of thing? Because this thing happened that was so above and beyond and horrible, you know, type of thing. And so tired for me was one reason why I wasn't really kind of pushing Sapo to say anything. <laughs> I think I think tired from COVID, tired from everything, but also tired of a particular kind of conversation, right, around this. And so, you know, and the other people did it, right? Other people had said what they had to say, you know. Okay, y'all. So now we're up to number one. Drum roll, please. <laughs> okay. So our top moment of 2021 is white people, still white people. And 
what do we mean by that? So last year, 2020, people were calling it a racial reckoning, right? And actually, there's this episode of the podcast on NPR called Code Switch, and it's called The Racial Reckoning That Wasn't, <laughs> right? And there, and basically, the part of the podcast is talking about how in 2020, because, you know, because, I mean, you know, George Floyd, you know, like, like, and actually, I think there's a brother, Kafani Sise, um, who's an imam and a scholar in Detroit, and he was talking about George Floyd's status, right? Because you know, because of the way the whole world responded, right, to his murder. Um, but, you know, so the whole world is responding, right? You know, and you're getting 25,000 statements from your universities, from the companies, and this kind of thing. And now we're in 2021, and your voting rights are getting taken away. They're about to overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> Just like, you know, your police is getting off, powering off. You know, it's just like, you know, like, so you kind of like, really? And so one thing that I wanted to share that I'm going to open up for other people to reflect on this is like, so in that episode, they, they, they cited this, um, it's like, a, it's like a think tank. They're called Creative Investment Research. And they're like a black run think tank that kind of focuses on, I think, economics and finance vis-a-vis the condition of black people. And they said that when they did a report, and it said something like corporate America pledged last year $55.6 billion in response to what happened with George Floyd. Basically, they're going to give this to the Black community. As of their report, and I think it was maybe June or was it October? I'm not sure. There's only been $250 million dispersed. Now, I'm no mathematician because that's not my area. So somebody can correct me. But I did. I found a percentage calculator and I went online and I was like, what is 250 million of 55.6 billion? And it was something like 0.4%. So it's like this huge pledges, but we don't see nothing. There was this other on, on Black News Tonight, that guy, Michael Harriet from The Root, was saying that there were these reports that like since 2020, Every other sort of racial, like, you know, racial indigenous group in the United States, their sort of conceptualization of Black people, their support for sort of like Black Lives Matter, broadly speaking, increased, except for white people. So, yeah. (laughs) So it's kind of like, yo, anybody want to weigh on that one? I think it's just like the title says, white people just still being white people because, and we have this expectation that they're going to do what they say they're going to do, but they have no history of that. They really have hit, I mean, they have, let me say they have a poor history. Don't let me say no history. They have a poor history of doing that. Nah, you can say no. (laughs) I can say no. People are making faces when I said no. I thought maybe I need to clean that up. You know, it's like Killer Mike is starting a black bank. Because white banks and certainly the black community, they have high interest rates. They don't support black businesses. And he has a waiting list for black people who want to join and get involved. The bank is supposed to launch, you know, next year. But it just shows that, you know, that waiting list shows that black people want to do something for themselves. You know, they want to be able to support ourselves. We want to be able to do for ourselves. And just the thing that he started in a black bank and so many people want to be involved in that. As, as long as we continue to wait for white people to do something for us, we'll just continue to be waiting. Uh, people had such great hopes for Joe Biden as president. Did they and, really, though? 
I think some people, well, well, maybe anybody but Trump. Maybe it's really, really anybody but Trump. Let's get him. Anybody but Trump. But, you know, the, the cuts to HBCU funding, you know, like you said, Roe v. Wade is about to be overthrown. You know, voting rights are still a shamble. I mean, it's just, what are we going to do? So I don't know about the Black capitalism, but anyway, well, sorry. Go ahead, <laughs> you know, you, you had said something to me many years ago, Sarah, is... White supremacy has been around a long time, so uh, it's going to be here for a while. It's going to take us more than a year and some promises mm, to get true. out of it, right? Um, it's a generational curse, if you will. Am I surprised? I don't think any person who is down with Black liberation and Pan-Africanism is truly surprised because if we look at what happened in 1960s, this happened, you know, when the Black Panthers came on and said, OK, gun rights. And they marched into <laughs> they marched in the, cap, uh, in the Capitol mm-hmm. building in California. What happened after that? Right. And then you had that mm-hmm. systematic rollback that we lived under. If you're if you're my generation, we lived under in the 80s, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wasn't surprised. I was just like, all right, when when is this really going to happen? And it just it, it basically happened on January 6th. <laughs> oh yeah man that's right yo that, that yo, yes I mean, if, if that's not like white people white people for real for real like and, it, and I have to be honest though like I guess I knew that could happen but even I was like yo what is going on right now <laughs> you know like it was just like you're like wow like they're just all up in the building with what's that the guy who had the, the ram the hat or whatever it's like <laughs> Yes, like it's like it's like yo, that's crazy. <laughs> that happened. I mean, Jermaine, Tasha, you want to talk about this, or you are you are you done? You done with this? <laughs> what about yeah. white people? About yeah, about yeah. this top one, <laughs> our, 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 our number one. For, uh, I'll, I'll let Jermaine go. Twenty twenty one. All right. Yeah, I, I, I don't think anybody is surprised that white people, white peopling. Um, <laughs> it's like you all have said, you know, that they've been white peopling since whatever. I since guess they became the white people. Mountains or whatever you want to say. <laughs> since, since they became white people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, they'll continue to, to, to white people. Um, I guess the bigger question is, you know, for another day or whatever, but when are we going to start black peopling and start doing, mm. start doing for ourselves? You know, kind of like... You know, what was just discussed about the, you know, the black bank created by Killer Mike. But, you know, I kind of think things are moving toward moving more towards uh, black entrepreneurship and and things like that, especially with with the younger crowd, with the younger folks. I don't know if any of you follow like 19 Keys or, you know, Brother Ben X or, you know, you know, any of, uh, you know, the group of individuals kind of in that realm. But, you know, they are. You know what I'm saying? Brothers in the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. And they are, you know, all about, I mean, pretty much what, you know, the NOI has always been about, which is, you know, empowering us first mm-hmm. and, you know, worrying about what white people are doing later, mm-hmm. you know, or if at mm-hmm. all. And, I, you know, I, I think the shift just needs to it, it, it needs to focus. It needs to shift there uh, more so than what they're doing, because, you know, they're just going to keep white people forever, you know. So I'm I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. I wasn't surprised at the Capitol building situation. And, you know, if they want to reverse bills and laws and things like that, I wouldn't be surprised at that either. Mm. So 
you know, the most important thing is, is just we get our thing together and uh, keep it moving. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, I think I like, so one, because I was thinking, I was like, should, should this be our top moment? I was like, that's kind of, maybe that's not whack. <laughs> but, but I mean, I also think, I guess I want to push back a little bit. Like, I don't think, I think black people are black people in, and we always been black people in. And I don't think we're going to black entrepreneur our ways to freedom. So I think like, I think that is like, like even Sapelo, like this is why, why do we have Sapelo Square? We're black people and like we're doing something for ourselves, right? So I think, it, I think it's complicated and it's difficult, but I think you're right. I agree totally that like our focus has to be, I mean, you, ha- you have to know your enemy. You have to know what's up, what you're up against, but you, but you, you don't start from a place of that. Yeah, you, you kind of start from a place of what you want and what you've envisioned and what you dream and what you desire, right? And you work for that in 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 an acknowledgement that you're gonna have these things coming up against you, as opposed to I think maybe just kind of start from a place of like, well, I gotta fight this thing. Do you know if that makes sense? And I think what you were saying about like how you were describing the nation, I think like I think that is a kind of ethic that it's definitely one that I feel like comes out of Black Muslim experiences. Um, and also, I think in broader Black experiences, kind of you you have a vision, you have a dream, you know, you have a truth. And that is kind of like you're guiding your North your north Star, right? As opposed to what white people is doing. <laughs> I think on some level. <laughs> oh, God. All right. So we have come to the conclusion of our top 10 moments right of 2021 but before i let the squad leave there's a question we ask all of our guests and i'm gonna ask them as well and that question is what is your black muslim theme song i don't know if any of you remember the group poor righteous teachers mm-hmm. like that they were early 90s late 80s um yeah and they had a song called Rock this funky joint. I think it came out in '89. Yeah, I, I remember. I, I was in like, I was in third grade, um, and I, you know, I just remember. I remember um, Wise Intelligence saying, "He said, uh, he said, Assalamu alaikum, walaikum assalam, the universal greeting of my of, of the people of my kind, or something like that." And at the time, I, you know, I had no idea. I had never heard anybody say you know, assalamu alaikum or anything at the time. I'm like, what is he saying? Mm. What is it? You know? So for me, that was kind of a, it was an awakening moment, just like, in a just like an awareness mm-hmm. that, you know, Islam even existed, mm-hmm. you know, cause you know, before then, you know, like, like I said, I was in third grade. So before <laughs> then, you know, just totally oblivious to everything, you know, but right there, right there at that moment, that was pretty much, you know, when the light went off, oh, you know, Islam exists, you know, and, that, you know, that's when I, you know, started asking questions and things like that. So for me, Rock This Funky Joint, My Poor Righteous Teachers. Nice. That is my Black Muslim. Uh, nice. Rock This Funky Joint. All right. I, <laughs> Aida. Mine is Lauren Hill's Lost Ones. When I got that miseducation of Lauren Hill, and listen to that, like, I was just so excited. <laughs> I was just so excited. And then I, like, this is still when there was tape players and you had to record on the tape. 
you know? So I actually recorded songs off the radio, but, and I would record it on the tape. And, and when I heard Lauren Hill's Lost Ones, that just set me off. I was just like, I'm Muslim. Like, I'm like this is like this is my love language and just the way she just you know like I, I like memorize all the lyrics I was just so hyped like it was just my that was my jam and it still is but just how she like just came out and just the beat all of it was is amazing it's still like an incredible song just is an incredible track nice who's up, who's up next I can go next. So mine is um, Redemption Song, Bob Marley's Redemption Song, but I like the John Legend version. So he does it, and it's really good. So Redemption Song, originally by Bob Marley, done by John Legend. Okay, I'm going to keep my comments of you choosing John Legend over Bob Marley to myself. <laughs> 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 okay, okay. Redemption song. All right. Yeah. Uh, we'll go with the song, but just go with the song. Redemption song. No, 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 no. We're gonna no, we're gonna no, we're gonna keep this is your this is your song. I'm just being petty. This is your <laughs> song. Not, I love I love the John Legend version of Redemption Song. <laughs> but I heard it first with Bob Marley. Right. Okay, so I'll go next. I wouldn't say that I have a Muslim theme song. I embraced Islam like later in life. So I'm still hearing songs now that I grew up with, like Jermaine stated, and they're referencing Islam. And I'm like, they were Muslim? So (laughs) I I would have to like really think on this to say what my theme song is. But I do like Jay Electronica's All Praises Due to Allah. So that's one of the songs Mm -hmm. whenever it comes on. And for some reason, when I get in the car, and I have the Bluetooth on, and it goes to iTunes, that song always comes up. So mm. I always listen to it when it comes on. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily my theme song, but I do I do really like it. Mm. Um, okay. Like, I, I feel like I should have something really dope <laughs> but like and really Islamic, but... Um, going along with the, the theme of R&B, I like Jill Scott's A Long Walk um, because mm. it reminds, like we're all, like I should say, I'm familiar with a lot of Philadelphia hip-hop artists and even New York art, hip-hop artists that influence and infuse Islam. But I think hers was one of the first besides Lauren Hill to come out in that neo-soul era where you just felt it was a natural interchange and exchange between blackness, soul music, and and an appreciation for Islam and like the dominant Christianity. Um, so I remember when I heard it, you know, you're like, yeah, yeah, da, 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 da. And then she says, Sura, what? I was like, wait, wait, what? Say what? <laughs> <laughs> you got to go back and like, like rewind. Uh, what? She said that? Um, and then, you know, there was the live version and the, the this version, you know, and, and she's from Philly. So just that interchange mm-hmm. of hip hop, R&B, soul singing with that melodious, like appreciation for, you know, 
as Black Muslims in particular, we have family who are Christian. And so for her in the first verse to go mm-hmm. from Christianity or reverse from Christianity to go to reverse from Islam and like talking about people who have different backgrounds and we got to do what we got to do. Let's take this walk. <laughs> like It's like, let's go mm-hmm. on this this journey together. That's what Islam is. That's anyway. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that that's mm-hmm. that's mine. Wow. I've never thought, I mean, that's a great way to think about that song, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I mean, I, I feel you in terms of like the kind of the, the back and forth, the Christian Muslim thing, because that's like our lives, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I was actually interviewed by um, Zaheer about Umi's archive and I gave a song, but that was more Ramadan based. But I think if I think about this, like my Black Muslim theme song, you know, for me, like my Blackness and my Muslimness are not, they're one and the same, right? So, and so, so then I think about what's the song that like, gets me hype. It gets me ready to face the day. And it really, um, uh, Talib Kweli's Goodbye. Um, cause I love and Yeah. You know, and I, the, the hook is like this morning, I woke up feeling brand new. I jumped up feeling my highs and my lows and my soul and my goals just to stop smoking and stop drinking. I've been thinking I got my reason just to get by, just to get by. And I love the song because I think, you know, you know, we all, everybody's struggling with something, right, in this dunya, right, in this world that we got to get up over, right? We got to get through and we got to work with, right, to get by. And getting by is not just, it's not just surviving though, right? I think it's really about living. And so, I don't know, that song for me is one of those things that's like, all right, so I, all right, this, white people still white people in, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, they ain't giving no vaccines to our people. You know what I mean? It's like all these things happening. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, but, you know, their highs and their lows, right? But we still got to do what we got to do. So that would be my Black Muslim thing song. Well, I want to thank you, Squad Goals, for showing up today and showing out and sharing your top 10 moments of 2021 with our On The Square family. And thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>